everyone. Welcome to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chong. Hey everyone, I hope you're doing well wherever you are. I just started my virtual residency at Rogers Art Loft, where I will be interviewing local Las Vegas artists and cultural workers of color. There will be a few live events, so I'll post them as they come about. Stay tuned. But for today, I have a really special episode with Dr. Jeffreen M. Hayes, a trained art historian and curator who advocates for racial inclusion, equity, and access. Jeffreen has extensive curatorial experience, and some of her projects include Silos, Augusta Savage, Renaissance Women, Afri-Cobra, Messages to the People, and Embracing the Lens, Black Florida Project. Jeffreen is also the executive director of Three Walls, a space that intentionally develops artistic platforms with artists to help manifest the organization's vision of art connecting segregated communities, people, and experiences together. In this episode, Jeffreen was extremely generous with her time and labor as she talks about her journey through different arts organizations, from challenging racist institutions to welcoming the unfolding of the unknown. We also talk about how representation by itself is not enough, allowing for vulnerable moments, the importance of Black-centered organizations, and defunding museums. Jeffreen hit so many key points more eloquently than I could ever do, and I'm excited to share our conversation with you. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, and I hope you enjoy this. Being an ED, the work is never complete. So I worked a little bit this morning and then took a little bit of break to do my laundry. Okay. Uh, and sitting in my, uh, my home office, looking outside because the sun is coming in. Oh, nice. Which is you're, nice. You're yeah. facing the West. Yeah. And so I can imagine that juggling all these things, especially working at home, probably is, can be a little stressful because the work never ends, right? It is a little bit stressful, uh, especially now that we've been in the pandemic for over a year. Yeah. And mm-hmm. our office has been closed since March of last year, like mid-March. And we have not returned to the office to work. Yeah. But for me, I typically work from home when I am working on grants and I have to write. It's much easier for me to set up shop at home and to focus on that writing. I'm itching a little bit to get back to the office and share space with my team and the artists in our community. Yeah. I mean, I think art, you know, it's really important to have these sort of community building process, especially within an arts community. So I guess before we go into Three Walls and the work they do, can you, you know, quickly talk about your origin story and how you got into the work that you're currently doing? It is a story. It is a story. So I started in the arts as a museum curator. Mm-hmm. It was the dream that I wanted to be a museum curator and do research yeah. and put together exhibitions. And after a few gigs in the museum space, um, black and white spaces, I got really disenchanted with the structure and just the oppressive nature of creativity 
but also connecting with communities. And in my case, more specifically, Black communities and Black audiences that the institutions were not. And my last museum job being on staff was in 2013. And I was at the Birmingham Museum of Art. And after my experience there, I made the decision that I would never go back to an art museum again. Mm -hmm. And that the work that I wanted to do was really on the ground with community members, Black community members, but also Black artists. I really love working more closely with artists. And I wasn't going to be able to do that consistently at Birmingham Museum of Art. And so I left there and moved to Chicago and had been in Chicago for a couple of years at Rebuild Foundation uh-huh. and took the job at Rebuild as ED because I wanted to merge the two things that I really cared about, which was Black community members, Black artists, and the ways to bring them together to collaborate. And Chicago seemed at that time like the place to do it, particularly at Rebuild. And just over my time there, there was just a disconnect. And, you know, the challenge always is with an artist-founded organization to stay on mission, right? And to Mm -hmm. stay within the vision. And that was absolutely the case at Rebuild. And then I I decided to leave because the work that I was doing was no longer the work of the organization. Right, right. The engine he needs to keep running despite whatever its original mission, right? Right. And and so I took a break uh, after that. I took about five months off, mainly because I was also burnt out. Before I got to Birmingham, I was I had just completed a pre-doc teaching fellowship at Ithaca College, went from there to Birmingham to do a postdoc. And while I was at Birmingham finishing my PhD, so uh, editing, all of that good stuff and came straight to Chicago. So there was no break for seven years. And I realized when I left Rebuild that I needed a break and I needed to reset and really think about, okay, what is it that you really want to do? You have all these skills. At the same time, I knew that Chicago was a place I wanted to be. I knew my work wasn't done. And so I went to Florida, as I always do when I want to ground myself. That's where my family is. Mm -hmm. Was there for five months and came back to Chicago, very much committed to working directly with artists. And as I was working with some artists on a community project, Three Walls actually came calling. And I wasn't sure that I wanted to actually go back to a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. And I had a couple of friends who were telling me that I should absolutely consider it. They were actually looking for me specifically. And I I actually wasn't sure that people actually knew I was in the city Mm -hmm. when I was at Rebuild because my work was so grounded on the South side. Right, right. But one of the artists I was working with was like, no, they're actually looking for you and you should absolutely apply. Mm. And so I did. And conversation after conversation, I kept getting called back. And from the first moment with that board of directors and artists who were involved in the search process, all I talked about was racism and how deeply embedded it is in the art world and how in Chicago, that is a majority city, black and brown. 
there wasn't an institution or organization serving the needs of these artists and how Three Walls as an artist-centered organization should be doing that work. And we weren't doing that work. Right, right. And they didn't get scared. That's good. <laughs> Interestingly <laughs> enough, yeah. I was a little bit surprised because I was like, okay, they're, if they aren't scared and they're willing to even listen yeah. and to engage in conversation, then I think I can probably do the work here. Yeah, yeah. Um, and now five and a half years later, here I am. Wow. That's like, yeah, that's an amazing path that you took to get to Three Walls. So you, and you mentioned that earlier that curating was always the dream. So I assume you're doing lots of art as you were growing up. I know you got a BA in art as well as a master's of art history and from Howard University. Um, and so, yeah, so how did you fall into the arts? How did that become the dream? Yeah, so I went to, I, you know, I'm a Gen Xer. So I grew up with art in school from elementary school all the way up to high school. And art was just one of my passions. And when I was finishing high school, there was a fleeting moment of like, oh, maybe I can be an artist and and not necessarily in the fine art tradition, but I was actually very much interested in animation. Mm-hmm. And it was a difficult conversation to have with my parents because I was the first to go to college mm-hmm. in my family. And art was not something... I was exposed to it, but it wasn't, it wasn't the culture within our family in terms of the visual arts. Music was, but not the visual arts. Uh So this idea that I wanted to be a creative or an artist, you know, I imagine, I know this to be the case with a lot of artists and creatives, you know, telling your parents that this is what you want to do. And the next question is like, well, how are you going to take care of yourself? Yeah, 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 exactly. And I didn't have an answer at that time. I I was just like, oh, so my major, I changed my major or I selected chemistry as my major and had plans to become a pharmacist. And within like my sophomore year, I was like, yeah, I can't do this. I don't want to be a pharmacist. I was trying to imagine what would my life look like? Yeah. And it was not being a pharmacist. <laughs> not that. <laughs> not that. Not that. And I took I took some time off from school. And during a summer course, I took an art history class. And that was it. It was like, mm. okay, this is what I'm going to do. I need to figure out you know, what I can do with this. Right, and right. I had a professor, my art history professor at the time, was like, okay, if you do humanities, you can do X, Y, and Z. And I was like, okay. Curate, he mentioned curator. I was like, okay, I guess yeah. that's what I'll do. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so the rest really is history. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you know what curating meant? Because I felt like it took me a while to understand what curating meant. Yeah, I I didn't. You know, I did a internship at the Orlando Museum of Art, which was my first, really my first art museum that yeah, I had yeah. ever visited. Yeah. And I was in the education department. I did not have a lot of time with the curators there, though. I think I met with the African curator maybe once and trying to learn, you know, what is a curator? And she said, you know, you get to do a lot of research and, you know, care for the collection and then exhibitions. I was like, okay. And I was like, okay, well, that makes sense to me. But also in the education department, I was doing research. I was giving tours. And I also knew that as a like curator of education, you could put together exhibitions. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. 
it really wasn't until I did an internship in New York at Jamaica Center for Arts and Learning that I got the hands-on mm. in terms of what does it mean to be a curator? Yeah, yeah. And I loved it. It was an opportunity at that point, they were getting ready to celebrate their 20th anniversary, I think. And they wanted to connect with the artists in residence over the arc of J. Cal. And I had to find everybody. And I was like, okay. And I think this is even before Google might've been a thing. Yeah. Um, And so I found, I think out of 20, I think I might've found 19 of them and we did studio visits and I was like, okay, this is, this is actually what I like. The community, community building part of it, the meeting people part of it. Yes. Yeah. And listening to artists talk about their process and their work and um, trying to make sense of it for the public. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, that was the first hands-on. And, you know, I don't curate as much or I don't curate in a traditional sense Mm. as an ED at Three Walls. Okay. I do curate independently, but one of the things I thought about when making the transition from being a museum curator to a leadership position, Uh a director of an organization was, okay, I'm about to have to give up the curating Mm -hmm. because being leading an institution requires a whole different set of thinking and skills and really time. Yeah. Yeah. And I had a friend tell me, well, you don't actually have to give it up. If you think Mm. about it, they're similar. They're like that you'd be doing the same thing. And over the past five and a half years, I've really thought about that. And I was like, well, I am curating because at the core of curating, at least for me, mm-hmm. it is about building relationships. Right, right. When you are putting together an exhibition, or at least when I'm putting together an exhibition, I'm not only thinking about the object singularly, I am thinking about the relationship between the objects. Right, right, right. I'm thinking about the relationship between the object and the visitor, and then thinking about all of the objects as it relates to the relationship to the institution right. and the experience that visitors have. Right. It's my leadership at Three Walls is very similar when I mm. think about building a board, thinking about a team, thinking about the artists and thinking about community. It's yeah. all rooted in relationships right, and right. taking the time to, to build them and to make sure that there's synergy between it all. Right. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I mean, I think a lot of people like to think of art as this sort of, you know, single person sort of bubble sort of space. And I think, you know, as 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 the world gets more hopefully connected and interconnected and globalized, that we realize that these bubbles kind of have to burst in some way. I was really drawn to, you know, when I was reading about your work and and listening to you, how you talk about these, you know, challenging topics, especially in institutions. And I'm curious how, you know, how, how in the, over the years of doing this, how do you go about challenging institutions? How do you go about talking about these issues of inequity, and diversity? You know, I mean, I, I assume that your time in Three Walls, that first initial meeting was a rarity, right? You know, so yeah, I'm curious, where, where'd you learn how to do all that? Yeah, so let me respond to what you just said in terms of the first meeting with Three Walls being rare. It wasn't that the first meeting was rare because I've had 
similar experiences mm. at museums or universities who have a diversity initiative. Mm-hmm. That first conversation, because you both know that you are there because of your identity. Right, right. You yeah. know that you are there because of inequity, right? Mm-hmm. So that first conversation is like, okay, it is the conversations that come later yeah. that are really telling. And so the conversations I've had with the board chair and, and the board of directors and artists in the early days of the you know hiring process at Three Walls, I was just building mm. and I wasn't letting go mm-hmm. and, and also kind of pushing and so sharing more and more. And that has been my process. Now I will say, and you know, my family, they know me to be very quiet okay. and shy. And I am very quiet and shy. But when it comes to injustices, mm-hmm. when it comes to really racism and white supremacy, I can't be quiet. Like it's it yeah. is just what I am supposed to be doing. Like I have a particular privilege. I have a PhD. I'm an ED. I have worked at all of these places. So I feel it is my responsibility because of the privilege that I have to use my voice. Mm -hmm. I will say my time at Howard was the place that began to kind of plant the seeds. Mm -hmm. And then my experience at College of William & Mary really like I was building the language. I was Mm -hmm. building the theoretical understanding of my lived experience and many others. And then while I was at Ithaca College, I had a racist incident happen from a student in my class. Mm -hmm. And that was the moment where I was like, okay, I can not address this or I, I address it with accountability and consequences. And from that moment on, I made a promise to myself that I would speak. Mm. And, and so I use all of the things that I know on the theoretical level to put that into practice, right? Mm. I'm also someone who I have put everything on the line in terms of that. Mm. And that is a choice that I have made. I recognize that a lot of people cannot, which is also why I speak out. Because at the end of the day, I have to be able to live with myself. I have to be able to sleep. I have to be able to look my mother in the eye, look my brother in the eye, my goddaughters. Like I have all these little ones in my life. And if I'm not speaking in this moment so that they have a better world, right, right. what am I doing? Right. Like I'm actually not benefiting by being silent. Yeah. So I speak. Also, quite frankly, the ancestors will not let me sleep if mm. I don't. And that's very real. I learned that last summer. What happened last summer? Well, last summer I um, was working on the publication for an exhibition that I curated on Uh Afrocobra. Okay, yeah. With Mocha North Miami. And we're working on the publication around the time of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's almost a year ago. Right, right. It's crazy to think that it's only a year. Only a year. and. Nothing has changed, yeah. but that's another, that's another part of the conversation. So, you know, while working on this publication, all of the, and I'm going to use the 
you know, the more kind of theoretical term, microaggressions okay. mm-hmm. were coming to a head okay. in this one document and the process. And as we were getting towards the end of the publication process, we're two weeks away and there was what prompted me speaking out and calling out the anti-Blackness was I had wanted sequencing of the book a particular way. Mm-hmm. And as I am the editor of the book, I'm the curator. You should have that power. I should have that, right? Yeah. Um, but that was not how the museum leadership was moving. Hmm. And so I had shared with the editor, I was like, well, I would like to see it sequenced sequence this way. And I'm, mm-hmm. a, I'm a visual person. Right. So let's see it that way. And instead, <laughs> the editor replied with a different sequencing. Okay. And I was like, I don't understand what happened. Yeah. Like, it wasn't just one meeting and y'all like changed this. Yeah, yeah, damn. And I, and I know that she, the editor was not the problem. Mm. The editor was doing her job by communicating to me what the leadership wanted. Right. But I had had enough at that point. Cause so it was like, you're not listening to me. You are absolutely not working within the ethos of Africobra. You have virtually silenced and sidelined the black graphic designer at the museum. And you're making these decisions without even talking to me. Yeah. And I said, what I need everyone on this team to acknowledge is your anti-blackness. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna tell you right now, no work is going to happen until I get an acknowledgement that this is happening. Yeah. We are working on a publication documenting two exhibitions of black artists from the 60s and 70s, their 50th anniversary, participation in the, you know, black arts movement, creating work for black audiences to be affirmed. Yeah. Challenging the status quo and making very political decisions about how they would move as a collective. Right, right. Working with Black curators, showing at that time only at Black institutions, them making a decision about how their work would be represented in the world. And what you're doing right now completely dismisses two years, two and a half years of work and acknowledgement. Yeah, all that research. All the research and also the love and respect for these artists because you want to see it a different way. Right. And you want to see it through the lens of whiteness. This book is not whiteness. <laughs> yeah. Afrocobra mm-hmm. is not whiteness. So this isn't the time. And and so as I was writing this email, I had not put everything that I had shared just now in that first email. <laughs> okay. I put a lot in there. Yeah. Yeah. There was just so much more. And I was like, okay, Jeffrey, like take a step back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, and I actually did. And I, and so I sent that email that night. I could not sleep. The ancestors literally woke me up uh-huh. and I was like, okay, I hear you. Yeah. I need to finish saying what I need to say, which is what I did the next morning. And I will say like within 24 hours, it might've even been sooner the designer, uh-huh. the two designers on the team responded 
and responded with acknowledgement and even named the moments mm. where they saw white supremacy working. Wow. And apologizing and acknowledging that they should have said something. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I have never had this happen to me before <laughs> because usually, right, the institution yeah, never yeah. wants to take any responsibility uh-huh, yeah. because they're afraid of being sued. Yeah. But these are contractors. Yeah, yeah. So that happened. The editor, I'll acknowledge that the editor was actually the first to respond and also, and just responded to me and also named the moments. Mm. They tried to like censor some of my writing because it made the museum look bad. Mm. I mean, it was just like so whack. And then heard from the publisher, but I didn't hear from two of the museum folk, Mm. the director and the project manager. And I just said, we have a problem. And I said, I sh- and, and the, the director actually wanted us to just kind of keep moving. I said, uh-uh, we can't just move. I said, I actually need you to acknowledge what is going on here. Wow. And then I didn't, it was like days before I heard from her. Silence. Yeah. Right. Because they were checking in with the board of directors, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Like mm-hmm. what's their culpability? They were also in that time hiring a lawyer. Okay. So- I finally get a response and the director was just like, oh, you know, I'm appalled at Mm -hmm. the notion that I would be, uh," because what I said, it was like, y'all are really acting like a tool of white supremacy. (laughs) Um, And how that just was appalling to her as a Jewish woman. uh And that, you know, she's anti-racist and da, da, da. And I was just like, whoa, you don't get to call yourself anti-racist. Let me tell you, you are not. And wanting to like, re- she was going to remain open and wanted to have a conversation. I was like, yeah, that time is coming gone. Like yeah. you should have actually sent me this response and you should have apologized days ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so at this point, you and the project manager should not communicate with me at all. The only people I will communicate with at this point is the black graphic designer and the publication team. Mm. And that's when they brought in a lawyer. I also said at that point, and I've said this publicly on social media, that that institution is not safe for Black people. Mm. And it is not because there has been a constant stream of exodus of Black folks. Yeah, You got a problem. Yeah, If Black folks are literally running away from your institution. Mm-hmm. So it's that was a moment last summer or fall where... The ancestors are like, no, this is the work. Yeah. You don't get to be quiet. Yeah. We've got you. And so I speak because I actually really want to sleep through the night. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I really do. Yeah. 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 Your ancestors have got your back. I think one of the things that people have trouble with, especially in these spaces, sort of managing the trauma and labor that you just went through, right? And and not seeing those results, right? And and then being Mm -hmm. gaslit and being silenced. And so those are sort of the things that are. I think a lot of people have trouble managing um, and that's sort of why when I hear you talk about it, it's, it's, you know, it's really inspiring and to hear, you know, all the things that you were able to accomplish through that labor. Thank you. Yeah. I, it was actually pretty amazing to not only have these folks who I really respect. It was like, this isn't personal. I'm just calling out your behavior and I'm calling you in. Yeah. Opening the dialogue. Opening the dialogue and let's, you know, talk about it. 
and to get that response and the detail of response and a commitment to doing better mm-hmm. was really amazing. And I'm, I'm very sure on the other end of it, on receiving it, right? Like there was, you know, a mix of emotion in receiving it. Mm-hmm. But what I appreciate about that moment was not only speaking my truth, but also holding space, even though I don't have to, mm-hmm. right? And that they met me and they continue to meet me. Mm. And I appreciate that. Like that is actually how structural change begins to happen because now there is a commitment with some of the folks to be more intentional about the projects they take on, mentoring, who they hire. That is the work. Right, right. So it is a lot of labor. And I would say, like, I have just, I've gotten to a point where in moments like that, I do take time to care for myself. Mm, mm. So this was also happening while I was on vacation from Three Walls. So I didn't really have a vacation Mm. (laughs) dealing with this, but I had enough time to just kind of decompress. And I am so incredibly fortunate to have a support network to care for me in these moments. And that what that looks like is me, like, me going to my close friends and be like, okay, this is what happened. Yeah. This is what I'm about to do. Yeah. 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 Just letting you know. <laughs> and they're like, say what you have to say. Yeah. So it is hard and it's a lot of labor and I'm only really able to do it because I have an, a support network yeah. of folk who clearly and fully and lovingly understand that this is my purpose. Right. It goes back to community, right? You need that community. Yeah. Yeah. It goes back to community and making sure that you have the right people in your community. Over the years, I have learned that not everyone is part of your community for the same reasons, mm-hmm. right? Like I yeah. think that happens. Right. What I can say from last summer to today, almost a year later, the folks who are part of my support network we share the same values mm. and we practice them mm-hmm. and we're all doing our own part in the world. Yeah. That hasn't always been the case for me. And as I think my voice gets louder and stronger, it's just become that much more important to have really the right people around yeah. me yeah. who aren't going to like drain the life out of me, but pour life into me right. in right. those moments where I'm pouring life into other folk. Yeah. Yeah. And so the publication got published. Oh, yeah. The publication got published and it is a gorgeous book. The fight, (laughs) I, you know, the fight was worth it. Yeah. But I also always think about we shouldn't have to fight. Right. Like, I don't know how much I believe in the notion that everything has to be a struggle. Mm -hmm. I just because it's too painful sometimes and it's so exhausting. Mm -hmm that we should be at this point in 2021 mm-hmm. where people are just supported, right? Yeah. Like that's it. Like, I don't believe that we should have to fight and kind of defend who you are yeah, and why you do what you do. Yeah. Just to live. Uh, just to live. Yeah. So yeah, the book got created and it's completely in 
my vision and absolutely reflects the love and community uh, around the shows and the artists and the Afrocobra artists really loved the book. And that's why I was doing it. Like yeah. At the end of the day, I built a relationship with these artists who were in their 70s, 80s and yeah. 90s. Yeah. And that time building a relationship, which we know is built on trust. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to let an institution kind of throw that by the wayside. Right. Because and dictate it. And dictate it. Like, yeah. These are artists who trust me. Mm-hmm. And so it is, again, like my responsibility to make sure that they are represented in yeah. the way that they want to be represented alongside my vision and extending the life of the exhibitions yeah. in this book. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's a beautiful book. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I need to get it. And I would like to, yeah, I would totally like to see, you know, how you put the different chapters and the chronology of the whole thing. Um, I was wondering if you could just quickly talk to the listeners, give a quick background about Africopa. Um, I saw th- I saw them first actually at the first I first learned about them at the MCA Chicago. There was like this group show, mm-hmm. uh, the Freedom Principle. I saw that show, and then that was the first time I ever came across it. And yeah, can you talk a little bit about how you came across them and also the work that you did, you know, in this curation process? Sure. So I was first introduced to Africopa at Howard. Okay. Several of the members were teaching or had taught at Howard. And while I was there, some of them were still teaching. And so introduced to them as artists who were also teaching. Mm. And then, you know, an art history survey class. And then learned more about them when I was at Hampton University Museum. They There was a show uh, that was curated by my colleague at the time. And the artists all came and that was the first time like seeing the whole collective and meeting them. And I was like, oh my gosh, like this is really amazing. It's been really cool. I I don't think I usually rarely meet the artists. (laughs) Right. But they were there and just in their full glory. And it was really wonderful. And so that that's my introduction. And what I'll say as a lead up to who they are, what I've learned over the past few years of working on the exhibitions around their 50th anniversary was that I am someone who completely embodies the values of Afrocobra. Mm-hmm. And so Afrocobra is a collective of Black artists. It was The collective was founded in 1968 on the South Side of Chicago. Mm-hmm. In response to the you know, civil rights and black power movement, right? So we're talking about the death, well, not just the death, the assassination, right, of Martin Luther King Jr. and so many leaders of the movement. And artists at that time, black artists, really wanting to contribute to the movement Mm -hmm. for liberation, liberation of black people. Mm -hmm. And the Collective was founded by five artists, Wadsworth, uh, Gerald, J. Gerald, Gerald Williams, uh, Barbara Jones Hogu, and Jeff Donaldson, mm-hmm. and came together to create this collective in response to the political climate and their contributions, but also to affirm Black humanity and, and to do that by 
defining philosophy and an ethos, making sure that their works depicted a positive representation Mm -hmm. of Black folks, using Kool-Aid colors, so bright colors that represent the diaspora, Mm -hmm. thinking about how do you communicate a message visually that's also not just about the figure, so using text. Mm -hmm. And being very intentional that their audience was a Black audience. Mm. They were not interested in what white critics would say right, because right. they wouldn't get the work. Yeah, It was always about Black folk, our humanity, and how Black folks saw themselves to counter the popular images right. of Black folks, right? Like the negative images, the stereotypes, and reflecting back to them. And so they were reflecting as well as speaking to. Right. And over the years, there have been a number of members and they are still an active collective today Mm -hmm. and continue to work. And they meet regularly. One of the things I really love about their process was that they would meet, they would have regular studio visits, critiquing each other's work. So this is also about community critiquing each other's work to make sure that you are making your best work, Mm -hmm. right? And they continue to do this. Some of the founders, the founders are not necessarily involved now, but they continue to do this as artists today and they make decisions collectively Mm. about whether or not they will show. Mm. And to continue to have this practice 50 years later, I think is really a testament to keeping the legacy going, right? But also accountability to each other. Mm. And I will say, this is a group of artists that is very hard to win over. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Because one, they've got like this history, right? Of of folk who didn't particularly, so there's a group of artists who, or I'm sorry, a group of folk within the art world who never really got their work. Right. You have a group of folks who don't fully understand the impact that this collective has made. Yeah. It's one of the longest and oldest running collectives. Many of the artists were part of the organization of black American culture, Uh Obasi, Uh who created really this the mural movement in Chicago with the wall of respect. Mm. So these are pioneers. Yeah. But there's also a sense, especially around the anniversary moments. Mm. Like why now? Exactly. Why now? Yeah, yeah. When y'all weren't checking for us 20 the years past ago. 50 or, years. <laughs> right. And and people wanting, right, to exploit. Yeah. And for me, I just made it very clear like look, I have really, like, I know y'all. Like, I came up really in the field with y'all in my rearview mirror. Mm -hmm. Like, I went to Howard. I practiced the ethos of really centering Black folks and really Black humanity. I'm also very intentional. My projects, I say my projects. And when I say my projects, I'm thinking of my curatorial projects, Mm -hmm. but I would also put three walls in that. I'm speaking directly to Black folks Mm -hmm. and everyone else gets to benefit from that. Mm -hmm. We know this, right? But my work really is about Black folks. And so 
in my conversations with them early on on the in the exhibitions, they were um, they were like grilling me, mm-hmm. and I I understood that because yeah. yeah why yeah. now and yeah. who are you and what, um, <laughs> but I was very consistent in yeah. being who I who I am, and now we have this lifelong relationship, which is really beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So you curate, help curate the show in Miami. And then this show also went to Venice as I, as I heard. Yeah. So I curated the show Afrocobra messages to the people in Miami for Mocha North Miami that opened like late December, 2018. And that was on the occasion of the 50th anniversary. And the first time that they had shown in Miami and North, and for folks who don't know, North Miami is a majority Black community. Mm-hmm. And so this museum being situated in a Black community, showing, you know, work by these artists was a reflection right, and a right. beginning point for rebuilding a relationship with a mm-hmm. community that didn't always have a strong relationship. Right. And um, it was such a beautiful show and... So many folks made multiple trips to see that show because they saw themselves, even though Afrocobra is like everyone is from the U.S., this is a diasporic show. And so folks across the diaspora were seeing themselves in the colors and the patterns, Mm -hmm. in the, the, the textures, in the improvisation And it was just so beautiful because that for me as a curator is the goal for folks to walk in and see a part of themselves. So that show was up until March of 2019. And then we did a different iteration of it for the Venice Biennale, which opened in May Mm -hmm. 2019, Mm -hmm. which was also a beautiful show and included similarly to the show in Miami, archival photographs, ephemera, and some newer works because for the Biennale, we needed newer works. Right. But it was also wonderful to share that experience with this collective. Again, for 50 years had been ignored largely by, right, the mainstream art world. Right, right. Now getting all this love at the Venice Biennale, the oldest art exhibition in the world. Yeah. And to be able to share it with some of those artists, it was just really beautiful and a once in a lifetime opportunity. Yeah. And it was also very well received in Venice. Some of the guys who were installing the work were, what I appreciated about it being in Venice was there was a little bit of folks not seeing race. Yeah, Mm -hmm. all of of Europe. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Not necessarily seeing race, but seeing these artists as artists. Mm. And so having folks talk about the artwork, right. Mm. The, the composition, like, how did they do this? How did they do that? Yeah. Which was right. Like at the end of the day, that's the universal Mm -hmm. response we want. But then some of the folks who were installing were married to African women and they were like, this is a show I'm going to bring my wife to Mm, because mm. she gets to see herself. Right. So it was just a beautiful kind of balance of what the artists wanted. Right. Right. 
and also this sort of reframing of this art canon, right? Venice being the yes. oldest, one of the oldest, uh, you know, art biennales, events, things mm-hmm. that happen on this supposedly global scale. And then mm-hmm. sort of reframing that, I think, is like a, yeah, I mean, hopefully this continues, this, all these different reframings and re, re-looking at the past in both the f- present and future. Yeah, I mean, this is something that's been happening in our history for a few decades. But I also know that we are in a moment where there is an urgency to it, Yeah. right? And I, I do hope that we continue to reframe and pull apart and build back up something that does reflect. And I rarely use the word diversity, but in this case, the diversity Mm. of artists, cultural expressions, and just really contributions to the, the lived experience. Right. And also all these different audiences, right? I think the sort of idea of this singular audience, I think in that sense, you know, Afri Cobra had this, uh, you know, even to this day, this notion that you don't have to speak to a singular white audience, right? And I think, when, you know, when I think about my own education in art school, you know, the, the big question, the big gotcha question is like, who's your audience, right? And which is sort of the, the subtle way of saying like, how how is the mainstream audience slash white audience going to get this work, right? Um, and I remember even like the past Whitney Biennial which had a whole lot of, which was like a slightly more diverse, you know, group of artists. There was a lot of criticism of the art critics who were just kind of trying to frame it within a white framework. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is the work that still needs to continue, right? Like if, if a white audience is not centered, then who's it really for? Mm -hmm. Right. Like that's what you're saying. That's, and that is the question that is being asked and the challenge with having critics and also curators Mm -hmm. who don't share a similar lived experience trying to position the work, right? Because it gets watered down a lot of times or whitewashed. And it's a part of the work that is probably the most exhausting Mm -hmm. because in a way, right, it goes back to, what I was saying earlier, like we shouldn't have to defend or justify Mm -hmm. why we're making what we're making, why we're moving in the way that we're moving, why we do what we do. And it usually is because that singular white audience, whoever is in that audience simply doesn't get it, not because they can't, but a lot of times because they won't. Yeah. They don't want to do the work. They don't want to do the work. And so I, you know, for me, and that's a lot of times my experience, either as an independent curator or even leading three walls, I have gotten to a point where, okay, if you tell me you don't understand it, okay, I'll have that first conversation with you. I might have a second. Mm. I'm not having a third Mm. because that third conversation, you continuing to tell me that you don't get it is because you don't want to, Mm -hmm. I'm no longer going to beg you to get it. Like it's just what it is. And I think more artists need to do that because when you don't and you just placate to the art world, right? Mainstream, which also means white, you are doing a disservice to yourself as an artist, the craft and your own humanity Mm -hmm. for what? 
to get a gold star. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's also crazy to think, you know, that people don't want to do the work because, you you know, you, you can go to any museum and I can think of hundreds of artist names whose work is really hard to get, right? Thinking of like maybe Joseph Casu's Three Walls. I mean, sorry, not Three Walls, Three Chairs. <laughs> sorry, right. just mixing the two. Um, any of Jackson Pollock's paintings, right? Like the work to even try to understand what they're doing, I would argue is the same amount of work for any kind of artwork, right? Absolutely. Because there's a rigor, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And with that rigor comes integrity. Yeah. And so there's just the only excuse, there's no excuse, right? Like there's, there's just no excuse for not actually coming to a work of art with a critical eye. Yeah. I mean, anyone who is non-white, if you have gone through art school as an artist or an art historian, we've had to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're not actually asking a lot for you to bring your critical eye yeah. and thinking to a work of art that you may not know or the artists you may not know. That's the beauty of art. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That supposedly there's no value to it, right? I mean, the market puts a value, but I mean, like you say, I think the beauty of art is the fact that it's hard to judge, right? And then you can allow yourself to revel in the ambiguity of whatever the artwork is. Yeah. I mean, to allow space for things to unfold that you don't know is for me what makes me get up every morning Mm. and do the work. I'm holding space for so much that I don't know with artists and artists that I don't have a personal relationship with and welcoming that unfolding, that Mm -hmm. tension. Yeah, yeah. So I I feel for folks who aren't open to that kind of experience, right? We also live in a world where, yes, the market tells us Mm -hmm. what we're supposed to like. We also live in a world where instant gratification Mm -hmm. is it. And if you can't Google it, (laughs) then, you know, like there's so much beauty in not knowing there's just beauty in not knowing. And I think there's also beauty in saying, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot to kind of unfold uh, within the art world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's a really strange place. I'm, every time I go to an art fair, I'm like, what is going on here? <laughs> <laughs> I don't go to art fairs anymore. <laughs> yeah. Thankfully, I don't have to. Yeah. 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 Um, and so, and then, so I'm just thinking, you know, we're talking about all these different audiences and kind of trying to figure out how to, you know, have shows and, and, and have these discussions. So I guess as the executive director of Three Walls, how has that experience been navigating all these different audiences? Because it's one thing to be an artist and say, I want this audience who I'll never meet most likely who look at my work, but then as the director of a art space, community, nonprofit, you know, you do have certain mm-hmm. goals in terms of tying these communities together, both the artists, the people watching it, the board and all of that. So how has that been and how do you navigate that? It has been complicated. Yeah. Like it, it's, it's, not an, it's not easy to do and nor should it. You know, so Three Walls went from a bricks and mortar gallery. So kind of a, what I would liken it to like a traditional nonprofit gallery where mm-hmm. we did exhibitions in our space mm-hmm. to really focusing on the artist as a human and dismantling or removing 
this barrier Mm -hmm. between the artist, art, and community. And in that, that has not been an easy road because we know most folks only experience art in a four, right, in a white cube. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Whether it's a museum or a gallery. Mm -hmm. And it's really just the object. Yeah. You might engage the artist, right, like at an opening, but when it comes to the art experience, it is within these four walls and with the object where with the current model at three walls, we're removing the walls um, and all of the ways Mm -hmm. and trying to center the human who is also an artist and trying to create the conditions in which they can be artists while acknowledging that they are also part of a larger ecosystem mm-hmm. of the world, yeah. which is your neighborhood, which is your community. Yeah. And also have community members recognize that an artist might live right next door to you. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Y'all may never have talked, but through the engagement programs, you get to actually know each other on a very human level. Mm-hmm. And then you know, the creative level. And so when it comes to the audiences, like there isn't, I don't want to say there isn't a specific audience. We have many audiences, right? right. right? As you kind of detailed, when it comes to the programs though, we function a little bit differently than some nonprofits where they're trying to make the board happy, Mm, right? Yeah, yeah, mm mm-hmm. That's not our relationship with our board of directors because our board of directors, they currently, now there was a board shift about three and a half years ago. Mm -hmm. They all understand and support the work that we do. Mm -hmm. So they're actually not even secondary, but like, you know, tertiary in terms of the audience. Mm -hmm. Um, They come to programs, they absolutely participate. They've even co-hosted programs but they understand that the audience is the artist and mm-hmm. neighborhood mm-hmm. Chicago residents. Mm. And, you know, there are some artists who absolutely take to that. And then there's some artists who want to continue kind of working in the mode of the traditional way of being an artist and mm-hmm. exhibiting. And you can do that, but you're probably not going to be successful at three walls mm. because what it means is you actually have to also step out of yeah. your silo. The other thing is like, we have a program called in session Mm -hmm. and it's been on hiatus because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. But when we had it in our space, one of the things I really loved about this program was that every session, so it's a, basically it's a conversation series, salon series. Yeah. It's a critical salon series. We have conversation artists propose to have a conversation on text. Yeah. And then there's a conversation and then a performance or Uh a performative element that activates the Uh conversation. And what I love about that program is that every session is a different set of audience folks. Mm, Yeah. And there's so much richness in that for, for us. I know a lot of thinking in nonprofits is like, how do you retain, you know, your audience, you know, are they coming to every program? And for us, it's like, it really just depends on the artist. It depends on the topic. 
And it also just tells us how diverse and rich mm. our community is. Mm -hmm. I actually don't want to see the same people coming yeah, because yeah. if that's the case, we're not doing our job in breaking down, yeah, right? Yeah. Segregated communities. Yeah. And so our audiences vary, which is really beautiful. And relationships are still at the core with the exhibition research model. It is about the artists and community members building a relationship that also will extend past the period that the artists are engaged with us. Mm. That's always the hope. Right, right. One thing I can say about Chicago and our community at large, not just the art community, is that it is collaborative. Mm -hmm. And so the hope for me is always that with each of the programs that we do, that there's collaboration that happens that probably would not have happened if they had not engaged us. Right, right, right. And that has, that absolutely has come about. Within session, what has, what started off as just kind of a program where critical conversation to really break away from the traditional, you can tell I'm not someone who believes in tradition. <laughs> um, I'm like, I was going to so many lectures yeah, yeah. at museums yeah, yeah. and art, art, art spaces. Yeah. And I was just like bored. I was like, are we still doing this? <laughs> or, or like the Q and A and there was no synergy right, one right, between right. the people. Right. And it just felt like I'm not really getting the depth that I want. Like this isn't my experience yeah, and that's yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah. How can we shift that in our space? And that's yeah. where in session comes into play. And, mm. and so in session has just elicited these really intimate and raw conversations mm. about lived experiences that just really, and we've had artists who participated in the program have said to us, this conversation would have never happened anywhere else. Mm. And it gets raw. I mean, yeah. like yeah. raw, but it's also that space where you recognize or realize like, oh, folks actually need this kind of space. They need community. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's so beautiful to see it just come alive in that way and relationships be built yeah. between you know, everyone, but also with three walls, like I take it very seriously that we have a community of folk who truly trust us. Yeah. We have artists who trust us. And it is because we also allow ourselves as individuals yeah. within an organization to be vulnerable, mm -hmm. to be transparent, yeah. which has absolutely welcomed vulnerability of our collaborative artists and the the folks who attend the program. And I will be frank in saying that was an unintended outcome. The, these discussions. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. not not just the discussions, but the the intimacy. Yeah. Yeah. And the yeah. vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And the authenticity. Right. Right. Like you walk in and yeah, you recognize that these are artists but you recognize that there's so much more. Right, right. And and folks leaving feeling affirmed mm -hmm. and much better about whatever right. when they leave a three walls program. Right, right. I'm really proud of that because yeah. you don't get that 
at a lot of institutions where if you go to an artist lecture, you might talk about, you know, what they said, but are you feeling like affirmed or like filled? Right, right. I think that's a rare thing to happen. And so it happens at Three Walls. So there are these layers of relationships that go to building different kinds of audiences. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. And then also just, I mean, thinking about those art lectures, a lot of times, you know, it feels like you need to have a, a BFA, MFA to even be able to speak there, right? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, again, like I've I've come to a place where I recognize not everything is for me. Yeah. Like, yes, I can, you know, understand what you're saying, but I also know that you're not speaking to me, right? right? right and right. so that's the other thing I think about this work of community and relationship building and even art and being a human is to recognize what is for you and what is not for you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean like any sort of community building is sort of like a complicated, hard roundabout answer, right? It is, Mm. especially when you don't always have the right people involved in that. Yeah. What I can say in terms of the boards you know, I mentioned that there was a transition yeah. of, of the board about three years ago. And that has made all the difference in mm-hmm. the work because the board I started off with was all white. Mm-hmm. They were part of the organization for various, you know, amounts Years. of, of yeah. time, right? Yeah. While they were supportive of a shift of the model because it was innovative and it was different. Many of them were not comfortable kind of letting go of the centering of whiteness, mm-hmm. the idea of community and a, and a community that is not the typical art audience yeah. or collector yeah. or big donor was a lot for them to, to take. Yeah. And so that was a very fraught time because they wanted diversity right. without giving up white supremacy or whiteness. They wanted the word and not the action. Exactly. Yeah. If I cannot do the work that I believe needs to happen, then I will leave. And, and the work that you were hired to do as well. And right? the work I was hired to do. Right. But I also think, right, like when you are hired to do something, it's usually not that thing, <laughs> right? Like yeah. it's the idea of a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is something to always consider. And I always think about, it's like, okay, what are you really asking me to do? Right, right, right. Because if you're telling me that this very wide organization needs to become more diverse, right. I'm actually going to do that. Right, right. You can, you know, go through your feelings of change, yeah. but you can't, be mad at me because I'm doing what you hired me to do. Right. And if I'm not supposed to be doing that, then what do you really want me to do? Right. Right. right? And so it is the word, it is the physical representation of diversity. Yeah. And the physical representation being the only representation. Right. That doesn't fly anymore. Yeah. Hopefully Mm -hmm. we'll, well, I mean, like, I feel like the news this past year has also been in some ways disheartening to see, you know, it's like every step forward is a few steps back. Yeah. I mean, right. Like we're having this conversation almost 24 hours after another black 
person was yeah, killed. Yeah, yeah, in Minneapolis, right? I believe the motorcycle. Uh, right outside. Yeah. yeah, right outside of Minneapolis. I think it's been about three weeks since the shooting in Atlanta, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. a majority of Asian folks were killed. Mm-hmm. He was having a bad day, right? A bad day. <laughs> you know, I just, yeah, it's it's exhausting. And yes, while there are like two steps forward, there's 10 steps back. I do think that representation is not enough. Yeah. I think there's a li- there are limits to it. Absolutely. Because if you have someone who just simply represents ethnic group or racial group, that doesn't necessarily mean that person is going to do the work. Right, right. Right? And that's what I mean by the limitations of representation. Right. But I also know that we are in a moment where, right, like all of these conversations are happening in the arts and there's some movement but I'm very inspired and encouraged by not necessarily folks in institutions, but those who are working outside of the institution. Yeah, yeah. And they are calling out the institutions. They're building different kinds of spaces and structures. Mm-hmm. That is actually where the real work is happening. And I, like folks who know me, I'm very public about this. I have no hope for museums. I don't, I think that history is so deeply steeped in whiteness and white supremacy and racialized capitalism that you literally, and I have written about this, like. You have the defund the museum article you wrote, right? Defund it. That's, that's one avenue. Defund and redistribute that money to the folks on the ground. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, museums will be fine. Or you let them actually crumble Mm-hmm. and build something new. I'm a f- fan of burn it all down mm-hmm. <laughs> and build a new because you cannot build an equitable art museum on the foundation of which the current structure is built upon. It will never root. It just it just won't. And I have friends, I have many friends who are in museums as curators or leading them in white institutions and I wish them well, but because of, again, like just the structure, whatever work that may take place there is probably not going to last Mm. because you haven't addressed the foundation. Yeah. So I don't have a lot of hope for Mm. museums unless we're talking about completely dismantling them Mm. and collectively rebuilding them. Yeah. 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 <laughs> not just museums, on on, not but, just museums, but you know, a lot of other things too, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like the whole system. It's yeah. it's it is the whole system. And one person can't change it. That's not fair to that one person. And no one person can do it alone if yeah. it's going to root. Yeah. And I think in the world of reacting to white supremacy and its violence. There is this notion, right, that if I just hire that one person, it's fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That just isn't, that's not sustainable. It's not healthy. It's also violent. And so if we are talking about a racially just world, if we're talking about an equitable world, if we're talking about a world that 
represents the humanity of folks, it's going to take a collective. Yeah. It goes back to community, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked about a lot. Uh, I don't know if I've missed anything. <laughs> I know you also have some podcasts, the Inside the Wall podcast, which mm-hmm. just started. I also know for it's been in the works for a while for the Love of Black podcast. I don't know if you want to talk about that. But yeah, that, sure. those are some of the, I think we've talked about a lot of different things. And if you want to talk about those as well, we can. Sure. So yes, for Three Walls, we do have a podcast called Inside the Walls. And it is uh, a podcast that I was very uh, hesitant to do. Uh So we've had a lot of folks over the past five and a half years that I've been there tell me that we need to tell our story. We need to tell how we're doing what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Because our story is actually a rarity in the art world, a white-led organization for 12 years becoming a Black space that supports Alana or BIPOC folk and doing it very well and it's rooting. The work that we're doing now does not need to go away once I leave. It can actually be sustainable. Yeah. There has been a lot of interest in, well, how did you change your board? And I had been really hesitant to to write about it or talk about it because it has been rooting. And I didn't want to talk about it prematurely because Mm. anything could happen. Right, right. And I think when you go through such a seismic change as Three Walls has, it is so deeply important to make sure that it, it, it literally roots. Mm-hmm. So we're not privy to the whims of a funder or even a board member. Mm. But the pandemic came uh, yeah, and that thing. that thing. And then the reckoning, the racial reckoning, the uprisings, mm-hmm. and also seeing how much a space for uh, a lot of BIPOC folks is needed in the arts. I was like, okay, this is the time to do it. So it gives a behind the scenes look into how Three Walls exists. It is fairly new. And, you know, talking about the board structure, how that came to be, talking about experiencing anti Blackness as an organization, talking with board members. We'll be talking, I'll be talking with my team. So it is about the inner workings. So allowing ourselves to be somewhat vulnerable, but also allowing a level of intimacy and privacy. Because I don't believe that a space like Three Walls, that because it is a Black space and it is a space for Alana, BIPOC folk, folks with intersectional identities, Mm -hmm we need to continue to hold space for intimacy, but also privacy. So not everything needs to be shared with the public. It's not about elitism as much as it is about caring for the folk who engage us. Yeah. And then I have a personal podcast for the love of black that have not yet released any episodes, but it is a space to really celebrate Blackness in all of its forms and to have conversation about race and art and just what it means to be a creative. I have not released 
episodes yet because it is a very intimate process. Mm -hmm. And I am someone who is not afraid to share my story publicly, particularly as I have navigated the field, but it also leaves me in a very vulnerable place. Mm -hmm. And I'm not quite ready for that, but we'll be releasing episodes soon because it is also has been top of mind. And it's also, it's, it's a space where unlike on Instagram, I feel like I can be more vulnerable and also just really on a really practical level, own my content. Yeah. 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 Well, I think, I feel like this idea of vulnerability on Instagram has long since passed. (laughs) Mm-hmm. You know, this idea of uh, authenticity, whatever that means on Instagram. Yeah. I mean, Instagram is so, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, it is my favorite social media platform uh-huh. and it's really because I like pictures. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. That's really, that's really it. And I feel very authentic, but I also know that I'm at a place where like social media just isn't the space anymore. Yeah. And so to your point, like how authentic, like if Instagram is no longer a place where the majority of folks are authentic, then that's probably not the space for me anymore. Yeah. So, so the podcast is for the love of black podcast is going to be that space. And I also intended it to be a platform to share my writing. And that is shifting because I'm that much more protective of my intellectual property. Mm. So, and that's really from the lessons I've had working on publications with museums. Mm, yeah. And, you know, there's, once it's out right on the internet, you can't control it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I don't, believe that it's going to be a space anymore for my writing. I think the podcast will hold some of that and then I'll figure out how and where to share the writing where I can control, control it a little bit more. Well, publish it. Yeah. Yeah, There's that. I think uh, I would have to, um, with the work that we're about, that we're doing at three walls and kind of the next level of work, I won't be publishing for a while. Mm. I had wanted to actually begin working on a book this year, but I think it's going to have to wait until I, after I leave three walls, Okay, which is okay, which is okay. Cause the work we're doing is about structural change Mm. really. And it's going to take all of my time and energy to do that. All the labor, right? All the labor. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as we're winding down, uh, I want to, again, thank you so much for your time and your labor for telling your story. And uh, um, can you, you know, let the folks know where they can find you, uh, where is the preferred way to look at your work and all the stuff that you do? Sure. So you can find me on Instagram at Dr. Uh, Art Culture Girl, all one word. You can also find more about my work at Three Walls at www.three-walls.org. We are also on Instagram at 
underscore three walls, T-H-R-E-E-W-A-L-L-S underscore. We're also on Facebook and, you know, you can listen to the podcast Inside the Walls, which is available on Spotify, Apple, and other podcast platforms. Right. Yeah. And then I'll let everyone know when For the Love of Black podcast comes out, hopefully soon. And yes. um, yeah, thank you so much, Jeffrey. Thank you. This was wonderful. Yeah. All right. Take Thanks. care. Bye. Take care. Bye. Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Z1 Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website www.seeingcolorpod.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoy this show and have the time, I'd appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcast or wherever you listen and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and gives greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.